Okay, we're starting in Numbers 27, verses 12 through 23. The Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abram and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah of Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation. And he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. Our second reading is from Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35, going through 1015. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits, to cast them out, and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff 
for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. This is the word of the Lord. So we have been discussing the Old Testament for the last month and a half, really the last 10 years, but uh, specifically the last 10, uh, the last uh, about eight weeks. Um, and we've been go- covering various encounters in the Old Testament. We started in Exodus 19 and Exodus 26, Ezekiel 1, Jeremiah 6, Revelation 4 and 5, although that's not the Old Testament. We looked for quite a while at the times in which God has revealed himself through encounters of worship. And those revelations told us something about the heart and nature of God, such that were we to ignore those revelations, we would be accountable and and deeply uh, ill-equipped to live out the Christian life. That is, what God shows Moses in Exodus 19, when the fire comes down and descends on Mount Sinai, when the earthquakes are, are being set off, when the mountain is trembling under the weighty glory of God, it's intended to convey something to us. That is, Moses, even though he was allowed to come up and behold God in a very small way, he wasn't able to behold God face to face. And then in the last two weeks, we looked at John 1, how Jesus Christ, according to John chapter 1, he is the one who was the word eternal. And the word we saw that it was with God and the word was God. So not only is Jesus Christ greater than Moses in his mediation of the new covenant, that is what he does in bringing the new covenant to us, but also where Moses could not stand to be before the glory of God, Jesus Christ was able to, that he was with God. We looked at how that word means face to face, Jesus and the Father eternally beholding and having fellowship mediated by the Spirit. And we saw how Jesus is intending to, throughout his life and ministry, reveal the heart of the Father who desires to come near his people, but because of their sin, they're unable to come near to him. We looked at how God had promised Moses and therefore promised Israel that he would bring them out of Egypt. He would literally rip them up out from the side of Egypt. It says that he carried them like on the wings of an eagle. And he he scooped them up and he brought them to a land that was good. But on the way, they began to doubt God's promise. We saw last week how they had rebelled against God's command, but not only to gather food, but also in the way that they went about gathering the quail. And then we looked at how Moses, even though he was this miraculous, uh, you know, signs and wonders wielding man, he failed. We saw last week how Moses in one instance did not uphold God as holy. Why did we, why did he not uphold God as holy? Because God had desired to meet the need of the people, though the people had a bad attitude in grumbling for water instead of asking for water. And Moses takes matters into his own hand. He doesn't hear God's voice, but rather, uh, you know, chastises verbally and then strikes the rock when Moses was told by God to speak to the rock. 
And so, we saw that even Moses, with his perfection, literally no word in the scripture is spoken against Moses, except for that exact example at Meribah. The only time that he failed, he still failed. And we see how that tells us we need someone who will never fail. We saw how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that one. In the very same way, as we move from Moses to Joshua, now now that we're beginning to enter the land, uh, God has killed off the generation that was unwilling to go into the land, which we're going to touch on a little bit. Even as Joshua steps up to, to bat, so to speak, we know he's going to strike out. Why do we know? Because we've seen every man up until now. They all fail. Even the most holy man up until this point in all of the world, Moses, who directly beheld God face to face for more than 40 days, for 40 days and then another week, and then also eating with the elders of Israel on the mountain, beholding God, having fellowship with God, having communion with God, even he failed. And so we see that we need one who is better than Moses. We, we need one who is perfect, and that is who Jesus Christ is. So as we're moving into the land and as Joshua is receiving this baton, we know that what Joshua is pointing to has to be something greater than Joshua. Joshua has to be a reference point or someone holding a sign pointing forward to Christ, how Christ is the one who truly brings us into the land, and that's what we're going to see today. But we're not going to stop just at looking at Jesus. Many Christians falsely understand or they, they read the New Testament and they see examples like John the Baptist, where John the Baptist says, rightfully so, he must increase, speaking of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ must increase and I must decrease. And they think that all believers are, are invited into that life that John the Baptist was invited to. No, John the Baptist was there at a particular moment as a transition between Old and New Covenant, to be the pointer to Jesus Christ, to say, as John the Baptist was, the last one in the tradition of the prophets, handing, him, handing the baton to Jesus Christ, who then would be the final prophet to Israel that would be necessary, although the apostles did in some way prophesy, Jesus Christ being the last prophet and also the fulfilling prophet, and then at that point they kill him. And so, we, we think, oh, well, we need to be like John the Baptist. You know, Jesus has to be made much of, and we have to be really low. Amen, Jesus has to be made much of. But, you know, God already didn't have you, and he wanted you around. That's why he made you. And you've been assigned a special purpose. Jesus is no longer here on the earth, and he's left you to carry on his work. And that's my main idea today that we're going to develop. We're going to develop it in this system of interpreting the Old Testament as it reflects forward into the New Testament. And we know that is a, it's right to do because we've been studying 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says these things happened, and then he refers to all the things in the Old Testament. These things happened as an example for us. And so we have to understand what is Israel not doing right in not going into the promised land immediately? What did they eventually do right? And how does both the negative and the positive examples point us forward to Jesus Christ and also the mission that Jesus would have us engage in as believers? If there is no mission for us as believers that is not vitally important, then it makes no sense to follow Jesus until the moment before your death and hopefully have a deathbed conversion. If there's nothing for you to do, if there's nothing, if there's no goodness God wants to work in your life, if there's no goodness that he wants to work through your life, then there's no point in coming to church. There's no point in warring against sin. There's no point in doing any of that. Because without a mission, 
there's no purpose. There's no, there's no reason to fight. And so you are not only fighting for the purity of the faith in your, to be wrought out in your own life, to be worked out in your own life. You are also fighting in order that you would have the ability to touch with love, with grace, and through the gospel, those around you. And that's exactly what we're commissioned to do by Jesus Christ. So that's a big bill, and hopefully we're going to be able to get through it all. We're going to look at it this in six examples. Uh, Caleb and Joshua's report that goes before they spend time in the wilderness. We're going to look at that. We briefly mentioned it last week, but it's very important to understand what the conflicting stories were concerning the promised land. We're going to look at Israel's mission. That was alluded to today in the Sunday school hour, if you were here. We're going to look at Joshua's calling, how Joshua was uniquely positioned and formed and trained to be the one to receive the baton from Moses and to carry on the people into the promised land. That same position is given to us. Jesus' encounter with the people in Matthew 9 that we read, how that mirrors and tells us that, yes, Joshua may have been a good leader, but Joshua eventually died. And we know the story goes downhill quickly after Joshua's death and, and his sons go to bad places. We, we see that even, even though Joshua was a good man, by and large, he had good leadership, he still expired. He still died. We need a leader who never dies. We look at Jesus sending the 12, and then also how that is not just the sending of the 12, but also the 72, and also the deacons, elders, pastors, and disciples. Every disciple of Jesus Christ was given this commission. We're going to look at that, and then we're going to see that culminating in our mission into all the earth. Whereas the Israelites only went into the promised land, Jesus Christ is leading us into the true promised land, which he intends to be all the earth. As he taught us to pray in, this, in his, uh, his famous prayer, we, we know and call the Our Father, hallowed be your name, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is desiring to, to bring the earth into agreement with what's going on in heaven. Believe me, there's no sin that's going around on, you know, around the throne. That, that doesn't happen. And so as we pray and work for the earth to become more and more like heaven, we have to understand that this isn't our invention, and therefore we are accountable to the Lord for how we respond to these things. So with that, let's get started. Israel is nearing the promised land. If you remember the story, God has just done 10 signs and wonders, 10 plagues that he brought on Egypt. And each of those plagues we saw uh, a few months ago, how each of those plagues was a specific mockery or God basically slapping the Egyptian mythologies in the face. The various plagues that he brought on Egypt were uh, they were foils, if you were, in a poetic sense, or, or if you think of a play, the opposite or the undoing of one of their gods. And then we saw how it culminated in the death of the firstborn son of Egypt, demonstrating that Egypt had set itself up as this mighty uh, you know, power in the land, and they had, through succession of pharaoh after pharaoh, established a dynasty that was the world power at the time. God strikes the Nile, not just because he wanted to show that he could turn water to blood, but he also makes the very lifeblood of the Nile a stench. I don't know if you've ever been fishing, but I can't imagine that it's good for the fish if the water turns to blood. They probably can't breathe. They'll probably start to die immediately. Can you imagine if you go down downtown and start walking around Riverscape and all of a sudden 
the water of the Miami River turns to blood. Now, the Nile is my, it's like miles across at some point, so it's a much bigger river. But the point is, it would smell, everything in it would die, it would be worse than, you know, the, the deep water horizon spill that, that eventually landed on the shores of Louisiana. It would be a terrible tragedy. And so God is doing these things to Egypt in order to humble them so that the pride of Pharaoh would be brought low so that he would drive them out of his land. And so God brings Israel out. And even after he's done all these plagues, all these calamities that God has brought on, on Egypt in the Exodus, Pharaoh, in the pride of his heart, as soon as he can get, you know, gasp for breath, so to speak, militarily, he decides, I'm going to get my army and chase them. If this is not a testimony to the pride of man and the desire of man to establish his own kingdom, I don't know what is. And so God decides he's going to wipe out Pharaoh completely, and he's teaching Israel a lesson over and over again through these events. He sends the people into the land, and then after sending the people into the land, he desires them to bring them to bring them into the promised land. Before they get to the promised land, in between the promised land and Egypt is the wilderness. And God tests the people at the wilderness, and it doesn't go well. We saw already how they, as soon as Moses left for a few minutes, they begin to make idols out of physical gold, which God had sent with them in the book of Uh, Genesis chapter 15, in the original covenant that God makes to Abraham, he says, know for certain that they'll come out with great wealth. He gives them gold from the Egyptians in order that they would be able to adorn the temple and to establish the temple in Israel. God's looking down the road, and this is the provision he's established, and they take all that gold and silver and precious stones, and they make idols with it. How offensive to the Lord. And so, God is testing them in this wilderness, and they get it wrong. They get it wrong multiple times, but the most important time they get it wrong is here when they're commanded to go into the land. They're told to send in spies. Moses is told by God to send spies into the land. And uh, they didn't announce who they were, and they didn't, uh, they didn't wear a badge, spy from the, the tribe of the Hebrews. They used concealment and went into the land and decided to spy it out. You probably remember the story if you've ever been to uh, Christian Sunday school. Ten came came back with a bad report, and two came back with a good report. We know that Caleb and Joshua were full of the fear of the Lord at this moment because we understand who Caleb was and who Joshua was, as well as the scriptures themselves telling us. Numbers 14, 6, and 7, Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, that's not a bad pun. That's a guy's name. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephthanuel, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. So what's happened? The 10 people have given their report. They've said that the, that the, the land is filled with cities that are fortified and people who look like giants. Okay, Cities that were fortified, people who look like giants. They tore their clothes, verse 7, and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. So the lying spies, the spies who were full of fear, who were not telling the truth, come and say, there's fortified cities and the men are like giants and we feel like grasshoppers in their sight. Now, at this point, you should say to yourself, well, hmm, seems like we've seen this before. Moses goes to God and God sends him to Pharaoh and Moses says, well, 
how can I speak? I'm, I'm bad of speech and I, I'm weak. And so God says, well, Aaron will go with you, right? And then he decides, you know, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll ch- challenge God one more time. And there's this back and forth that goes on with Moses until the point where God basically says to Moses, get out of here and go do what I told you. And so even Moses, this really pretty good example of, of a faithful covenant keeper, uh, he gets it wrong. The people of Israel are afraid to go time and again. And then even after they go, God at some point has to say to Moses, Moses, you've been too long on this mountain. Go and journey to the sea. Go on your way to the promised land. So the people of Israel are used to this pattern of, well, God told us to do something. Let's evaluate it for ourselves. Now, according to the scriptures, God tells them to send the spies into the land, and he does it to test them to see whether they were willing to obey or unwilling to obey. And it's my opinion, it's as I'll assert in just a moment, that they were commanded to obey and they had every reason to obey. It wasn't as if this was a new idea. Verse 8, if the Lord delights in us, this is Caleb and Joshua saying this, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. If you remember from last week, this is my favorite type of cereal. Honey Nut Cheerios. I love it. I love this idea. I love that God would decide to describe a land like a dessert. Because he's describing this land and he's saying it's overly good. And also, Caleb and Joshua are trying to remind the people, when God brought Israel out of uh, Egypt, he said to them, it is not because you were a great nation that I have chosen to set my love on you, but rather it was because you were small and because I chose to set my love on you. And so when they say in verse 8, if the Lord delights in us, the answer is, amen, check all the boxes, ding, ding, ding. The answer is already true. Israel already knows that the Lord delights in them because of what he's done in destroying Egypt and bringing them out. Verse 9, only do not rebel against the Lord. Their unbelief is considered by Caleb and Joshua, these two good spies who bring a faithful report they consider it to be rebellion against God to not believe in his promise. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. What were they lacking in the wilderness all the time? Bread. What they're saying is they have no substance. Have you ever taken a piece of Wonder Bread and tried to make a legitimate sandwich out of it? It, it instantly becomes nothing because bread has no substance. It's, it's puffy. It's airy. The other spies said they were giants, and these people are saying they're like bread. You can step on it and it's squished immediately. They are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Two reasons to have great confidence. I don't know about you. These people probably haven't heard the art of war. The art of war has nothing to do with the Lord being on your side. Caleb and Joshua say the Lord is with us in addition to the fact that their protection is removed from them. Do not fear them. Caleb and Joshua get to the heart of the matter. They say the point of Israel's rebellion is fear that God will not be with them. And God has made over and over again abundantly clear he will be with them, he will go before them, he will also be their rear guard. God had commanded Israel to go in and given her support. He taught them every time how he fights for them through the Exodus. And at this point, it's necessary to understand that God judges the unbelief of Israel and prevents the entire generation from entering into the land. They have to wait 40 whole years so that all those who rebelled would die off 
in order that God would start with a new group, intending for God to communicate to the Hebrews, I will not work with those who rebel against me. And so they die off, and the, the people have to go and circle in the wilderness. You know, if you look at the, the distance between Egypt and Israel, you can make that journey in about four days, maybe five. And if you've got a big group with people and animals who can carry water, you can probably make it a lot faster than if you ha- only have a small team of people. And especially if you've got God opening streams out of rocks, you can probably get through it really quickly. But it took them 40 whole years. If you look at that stretch of land, it's only a few hundred miles. They circle and circle because they did not want to go in, and they're subjected to a judgment of a temporal earth, earthly judgment of having to die off in the wilderness. So at this point, God has brought Israel again to the chance to enter the promised land, and this time he's going to take them through. But I want to ask you the question, how was their failure to enter judged as unbelief? Shouldn't it have been judged merely as cowardice or uh, a lack of courage or a lack of, you know, we, we talk about the seven deadly sins, P- perhaps it was sloth. They were just slow to do what God required. They just were lazy. No, God judges it as unbelief. And the reason we know this is clear, that every time God does something, every revelation that God gives, it's intended to communicate something about his person, such that that revelation now makes you accountable to that aspect of who God is. God reveals himself to Abraham in Genesis 15 through 18, and Abraham believes God. It says in Galatians 2 and 3 that it's credited to Abraham as righteousness. Abraham obeyed and followed. God said, leave the Chaldeans, this really cool culture and political power of the time, and journey to a land that I'll show you. And Abraham said, sure. He revealed to, uh, to Abraham as himself as the God who opens the womb. Remember, his wife, Sarah, at the time, she was 90 plus. I don't know about you, I've never heard of a 90-year-old woman ever giving birth. I mean, think about it. A 90-year-old, this is the golden girl's level of age. If you don't have a grandma, perhaps you need that illustration. 90-year-old woman who is going to have a child. That is utter folly to the natural mind. Abraham hears the promise of God, believes it. God opens the womb. And so what does God do? He, he makes sure that Abraham has learned the lesson. He commands him to go and sacrifice his son Isaac. The point is, he's wanting to see, does Abraham understand that I'm the one who's in charge of fulfilling the promise to make him a father of many nations? He gives him this promise, I'll make you a father of many nations. And up until this point, Abraham hasn't had any children. God makes Abraham accountable to that aspect of revelation which he's shown through the miracle. And so, again, Israel is shown time and again what he's doing through the Exodus. He tells Israel to invade, and they say no. He had just destroyed the greatest military empire that had ever existed at that point in history by by throwing Pharaoh and all of his chariots into a giant sea and covering them such that they were all destroyed. Not a man of the army of Pharaoh was left. And they don't believe that he'll be with them to go defeat some small cities when they had just seen God destroy all of Egypt. This is amazing unbelief. This is what sin is. This is the type of sin that unbelief really constitutes. It's illogical 
if you're aided by the Holy Spirit to see it, it it's less than logical. It's, it's actually absurd to choose this over choosing to go into the land. And so God rightly judges it unbelief. But you and I are more susceptible to this sort of unbelief than we really know, or, or if we know, would be open to admit it. The reason why is we don't see that what God does in revealing an aspect of his nature is supposed to form in us faith and deliver us from that type of unbelief which prevents us from entering the land. And so we're going to see how this is what Jesus is doing in the gospel. When Moses is about to die, he prays to the Lord concerning the people, and he says, the main point I want to get across is the end of verse 17, so that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep who have no shepherd. And so this is Moses' good heart. We see Moses as a faithful covenant keeper. He really is pure in his leadership. He, he desires over and over again that the people would be blessed. At one point, God says to Moses, stand aside, I'm going to wipe them out, and I'll make you Abraham, so to speak. I'll make you a father of many great people. And Moses intercedes before God, and he says, no, what about your reputation? You'll be, all the nations of the earth will have seen how you brought this people out into the wilderness and then slayed them. And moreover, it would jeopardize, but not break, it would jeopardize your promise to Abraham. Moses is interceding for the people, and even in the midst of his judgment, that is, Moses isn't allowed to go in the land, the very calling of his entire life to bring the people into the land, he still, at that moment, is interceding for the people. His earnest prayer, his true prayer, is that the congregation of the Lord may not be as people or sheep without a shepherd. That's amazing. That's really good leadership. Though Moses had failed to uphold God holy at Meribah, his prayer reveals a true heart of a shepherd, a desire for the good of the people. And this is exactly the type of shepherd that Joshua is going to be. God doesn't even hesitate at all. It doesn't, God doesn't do something like go down, you know, test staffs or you know, pick somebody or go anoint who I show you, God immediately says to Moses, go get Joshua. Why? Because God knew Joshua. He knew him very well. Take Joshua, a man in whom is the Spirit. Whoa, Old Covenant, a man in whom is the Spirit. That really busts a lot of our theologies, doesn't it? A man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. It's beautiful. Joshua is a man that God knows and trusts and is ready to lead his people. Just as Moses had been trained in the wilderness before leading the people, so also Joshua has been trained for this moment. He is ready to take the baton. The fundamental element of his preparation, in my opinion, although that it doesn't explicitly say this in the Old Testament, is his habit of spending time in the tabernacle. Exodus 33, verse 11, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again in the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Joshua lived at the tabernacle. He saw over and over again how when Moses would show up in the verses immediately before this in Exodus 33, when Moses shows up, the glory of God descends in a cloud over the tabernacle, and God would speak to Moses and Joshua is kind of just, at, he's kind of crawling at the door, just hoping to get any glimpse of God or revelation uh, that'll seep out of the tent of meeting. He's just waiting there because he loves to be in God's presence. He loves to be around Yahweh. And before Joshua ever leads the people, he was trained in God's presence. I'm firmly convinced that Joshua at this time had developed 
a moral character such that he was able to understand whether God was pleased or displeased with how he was acting moment by moment. Joshua goes on to take the people into the land and starts to conquer it. And for a while, there's a great victory. But we know that Joshua eventually dies and his children after him don't uphold the covenant. And Israel goes through this time of wandering even once they get into the promised land. Though God had desired to bless Israel, she rebels time and again. We've, we've talked about this many times, so we don't have a lot of time to review it. But after this point, Israel goes through this time in which she occasionally will repent and believe in God's promise and war against the inhabitants of the land and not establish idols, but really worship the one true God. And then she drifts from that. She, she receives the blessings of the covenant. She uh, grows and is prospered in many ways and begins to turn away from God. And she establishes the idols. She re- refuses to, to punish and to judge the other nations that were still in uh, the promised land at the time. And she is unable to maintain in her own strength the fear of the Lord. And so she goes through this time of, you know, repentance, belief, faith, trust, obedience, and then apostasy, idolatry, complacency, sloth. And it's this kind of pendulum swing for quite a while. There's this theme over and over again of exile, return, repentance, sloth, exile, return, repentance. And this is the pattern over and over again, such that the Old Testament is essentially closing with an unstated principle or an unstated part of the Old Testament, the final statement, so to speak, is we need a change. We need a change that's going to bring a significant difference. And this is exactly what happens when Jesus Christ comes onto the scene. Remember what Moses had prayed for, that the people would not be like sheep without a shepherd? This is exactly what happens when Jesus comes on the scene. It is a picture of people that are ravaged by sickness, disease, poverty, spiritual complacency. In the book of Malachi, it talks about this state where the family, the fathers and the children, have this division that that families don't even care for their own natural offspring. Sound familiar? This people is like the people who are the sheep without a shepherd. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ says concerning them. Verse 9, or sorry, Matthew 9, verse 35, Jesus went throughout all their cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, this is Matthew's interpretation, but the other gospel writers say the exact same thing, the exact same phrase. Jesus, verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew and the other gospel writers are trying to, bold exclamation point, refer back to Moses's prayer. That phrase is not coincidental, it's intentional. The writer is trying to say Jesus is the true good shepherd that we need. And how is he the true good shepherd who we need? Because of what he's done. He's gone into every village, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of affliction. That's pretty totalizing language if you think about it. That's not Jesus went around praying for people who had colds and believing that they would get better by tomorrow. That's that's not like oh, this kid scraped their knee, so let's pray to Jesus, and eventually it'll scab over. Jesus went about healing every disease and every affliction. 
spiritual or otherwise. That's amazing. Verse 37, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. I think it's a vital aspect of reading your scriptures that whenever you see a chapter break, you just take the time to go into the next chapter just a little bit to see if that's a good or a bad chapter break. In my opinion, this is a very bad chapter break. The reason why is because of what's happened in the church today is we say there is this great cultural need. And Jesus's response to great cultural need in Matthew 9 is pray that the Lord would send laborers in the harvest. And they end. Close the sermon, call for people to come forward, go on about your week. The point of this is that Jesus immediately backs up prayer with action in Matthew 10, verse 1. Jesus' response to this condition, the sheep without a shepherd, the very condition that Moses prayed against is compassion and action that is prayerful, that's filled with the Spirit, that's intentional. Christ has become for us a good and true shepherd of the sheep, but amazingly, as if that weren't enough, it does not end there. And in no way does this diminish the work of Christ, but rather, according to the what I think is a better title for the book of Acts, instead of the Acts of the Apostles, it's the Acts of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit working in the Apostles. Now that's a very long title, and you'd have to find some good abbreviation for it, but that's what Acts is. In Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus says, wait, you'll be my witnesses, you'll be clothed with power from on high, you'll, you'll preach the gospel in Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Jesus is intentionally commanding his disciples to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit so that they would be his witnesses. Now, before we get to that point, as a small precursor or a small um, picture, a thumbnail, if you want, of what is coming in the future, Jesus intentionally makes sure that his disciples understand that it's not just he who does these things, but rather it is those who are filled with the Spirit of God and are bringing the heart of the Father in showing compassion for a people, a people who look like sheep without shepherds. And I don't know about you, if you've been doing any Facebook or Fox News, I don't, I don't like Fox News, Drudge Report, whatever. If you've been looking around lately, in the last 10 years at least, you might consider our culture as being sheep without shepherds. Now, I'm not preaching doom and gloom. I believe the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And that is totally, the waters cover the sea totally. The glory of God will cover the earth, but that doesn't mean that every single culture will just be blessed until the Lord returns. We have people in our midst, in this city, on this street, who need to hear about a God who comes and loves them and rescues them and is chasing them down and also is able to do something about their problems. God is attempting to wake us up to this reality, and it's my opinion that he's going to get what he wants. Jesus Christ is worthy to receive all of the rewards of his suffering. Amen? What he did in the flesh while on earth, he has made a way for that to continue with his disciples. Matthew 10, verse 1, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits. Do you see the pattern here? God is told... God tells Moses to give to Joshua some of his authority. And Jesus here, in verse 1 of Matthew 10, gives some of his authority to the disciples. He gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal just colds and flus? No. 
every disease, every disease and every affliction. And proclaim as you go, skipping to verse 7, proclaim as you go, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Therefore, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Now, you could make an argument, if you just read verse 1, saying, well, Jesus just gave them authority. He didn't really command them to do it or not. But then when you get to verse 7, you can't make that argument anymore. He gives them a command. Preach, saying, the kingdom of God is at hand, which means it's near. Your hand is pretty close to you. Maybe it's a little bit away from you occasionally, but it's it's close. The kingdom of God is near you. The kingdom of God is not coming at the end of the age when you die and go to heaven or when Jesus returns. That's not the kingdom of God. Although the kingdom will be fully realized then, that is not when the kingdom of God is coming. Jesus Christ and John the Baptist began preaching, saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus tells them to use the exact same message. And then in verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. So don't charge for it. One of the greatest signs of the spiritual cancer on the American church, if you want to turn on TBN, you see it all night long, little widows and poor people are told that if they just send in their gift of $25, God will bless them. It's, it's absolutely disgusting, in my opinion, that ministers of the gospel are doing these sorts of things to people who are not in their spiritual care. You are a group of people, most of you who come to this church, you are a group of people who belong to a church, and the elders of this church have been charged by God to be overseers who care for you. And these, these ridiculous people on television have no spiritual care that's commanded by God for you, And also, they don't even know your names. Most of these people who run these national ministries who pillage the the poor Christians of this country are doing so in order to manipulate them, and it's just absolutely disgusting. That's not in my notes. But anyway, (laughs) the point is, the point is they're doing something that God commanded them not to. Jesus Christ said, don't make them pay, and they're not doing the things that he does command them to do which is to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to cleanse the lepers, and to raise the dead. And if you object, saying, well, you know, John, I I hear what you're saying, but Matthew 10 was just said to the 12. If you object, let's look again. Luke 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two. It's almost as if Christ is building an ark. Two by two into every town and every place where he himself was about to go. Now, that's not even a joke. I believe the church in that time was an ark to survive the destruction which was coming, but that's another story for another day. The point is, it's not just the 12, it's the 72. There's a lot more people than just the, the original 12, one of whom turned out to be a traitor, but it doesn't say anything in the scriptures that Jesus didn't allow Judas to do any miracles. He probably did some miracles. Work that out in your theology. You may object further, saying, well, this was only done when Jesus was on the earth. And I would respond, yes, it was done with Jesus on the earth. But if you read the book of Acts, it was clearly not just Jesus on the earth. First Corinthians 2, 3 through 5. Okay, you may say, well, Jesus was speaking to Galileans, and he was speaking to people who had faith and who knew the law of God. But then when Paul goes to the city of Corinth, right, he, he says to the Corinthians, he gives them the gospel, and he starts to do signs and wonders to prove that the testimony of Jesus Christ is true. 
and, and we know this because of Paul's own hand writing in 1 Corinthians 2, 3 through 5, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. It wasn't really polished. It prob- he probably didn't have a lot of rehearsal. He wasn't wearing a suit. Uh, that wasn't the style of the day. He probably was wearing common clothes. He wasn't offensively dirty or anything like that, but he, he wasn't exactly you know running a PowerPoint or anything. Verse 4, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and in power. The Greeks had idolized the philosophers of their day. They were considered to be one of the top uh, rungs in the social hierarchy of the day. And Paul comes and says, I didn't speak a bunch of wise stuff that a bunch of wise guys understood, but rather I spoke in the demonstrations of the Spirit. And if, it, if you don't understand that, he backs it up with, and power. There's no missing what he's talking about. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The point is that if Paul had only preached the gospel in word only, but had never ministered in power, then he had not fully preached the gospel. The work that Christ began was absolutely carried on by the apostles and their disciples, and it was intended that they would raise up others. And that did happen. In Paul's final letter to Timothy, he shows us the pattern of succession. 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, you then my child. So we've, we've got Jesus Christ who sends out the apostles, and then Paul who wasn't one of the twelve. He was an apostle untimely born. He was an apostle who didn't walk with Jesus but saw Jesus on the road to, to uh, Damascus, and he got turned around, and eventually you know, he repented and became a Christian. Paul wasn't originally one of the twelve, but he did signs and wonders. And now he's telling Timothy to do something. He says to Timothy, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. Verse 2, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. So there's Jesus, the apostles, Paul, Timothy, entrust to faithful men, that's the fifth generation, and sixth, who will be able to teach others also. The point is, what God establishes, he intends to sustain. He intends for it to continue, and it doesn't pass away. Although there is a deep darkness on our land, and many see no need for Christ, we are nevertheless called to be faithful, and in a bold battle, standing firm on the promises of God. Now, you may object saying, well, you know, John, Jesus was speaking to Galileans, and then Jesus was speaking to the 72 who agreed with him and who were following him, and, you know, Paul was speaking to Timothy who he had a relationship with, etc., etc., And you may even say, well, that was spoken to the Galileans, but we're not Galileans. Yet, it seems to me that no one objects when they interpret Jesus praying for those who don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Everybody's cool with interpreting that to apply to us. Nobody ever objects to that. You don't look like Corinthians, but every time I preach Corinthians, no one objects. Because we understand, because we've been filled with the Spirit of God, that the Word of God applies to all the disciples of Christ. Jesus and the apostles never give a single indication in anywhere in the scriptures that they expected the miracles, signs, and wonders to cease. There is never any hint or explicit statement saying that after after me, it's all done. And the testimony of church history over and over again shows these very zealous church leaders, fathers of the faith, who say if a Christian claims to be a Christian, and yet when they pray, 
there's nothing that happens, then they're really a young believer. Statements like that are very hard to, dimi- to dismiss. The point is that we are being sent on a mission, and it's up to us to take hold of the grace of God that is available today to see a restoration of the true gospel fully preached with clarity, historical accuracy, the exaltation of Jesus Christ as the one who fulfills all the promises and an authentic display of signs and wonders. Matthew 28:18 through 20, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That is the basis of the Great Commission. Jesus Christ has all authority. Verse 18, verse 19, go therefore. The word therefore means in the light of the fact that I have all authority, go into all the nations, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. We've seen how again and again, that's not a formula, what you have to say before you dunk somebody, but rather it's bringing those nations into the life of the triune God. Baptizing means to submerge, to surround with, bring the nations into a life that is at harmony with the fellowship that's in God. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Wait a second. I thought Jesus commanded the disciples to go into the towns, heal the sick, cleanse lepers. He, he commanded them that, right? And then he just said, teach all the nations to observe all that I commanded you. So I guess it applies. I don't know. I'm, I'm out on a limb there. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What was the major thing that the, that the Israelites were fearful of before they decided to not go in the land? They were afraid that God would not be with them. And Jesus is sending his disciples not into some small promised land that is focused on a geographic region, but is sending them into all the nations of the earth. Like the Israelites who finally go into the land and the disciples which went through all of Israel and then to the utmost parts of the earth, we are called into the exact same journey and mission. We're called not to just geographical missions. I long for the day when our church sends someone to another nation. That isn't the United States. I long for the day. I hope to go on the first trip. Maybe not permanently, maybe just for a few weeks. I know for sure I'm going with Anvesh to India because their food's amazing <laughs> and they need the gospel. It should be they, they need the gospel and their food's amazing. But the point is, everyone in the church is okay with geographic missions. Everyone gives money. We're all happy with that. Very seldomly do you get an amen for saying you should be witnessing to your neighbors in the same manner that the missionaries do in other nations. And that's all I'm saying. His lordship should be declared over every aspect and place in life. The family, education, uh, art, culture, business, government, all of it belongs to Jesus Christ. I'm getting the quote wrong, and I don't know who it is. I think it's Martin Lloyd, Lloyd uh, Martin Lloyd Jones, um, but I, I could be wrong. It could be J.I. Packer. Um, I'm not very good with quotes, but essentially the quote that I'm paraphrasing is: "There is not one square inch of all of the earth or the entire universe over which the risen Christ does not say mine, and I own it." That's exactly what we're called to do in being Christians. We're called to, in love, share the gospel of the kingdom, which is that Jesus has atoned for your sins and made a way for you, who are a rebel and a traitorous sinner, to be justified before the Father, to have life with him. 
And that life will be a fulfillment of the true purpose for why you were made. As an image bearer of God, God has invested you with the ability and the capacity to have communion with him. We are not like the animals. We are not what the evolutionists say, just protoplasm, time and chance, acting on matter without a purpose, going nowhere, coming from nowhere. We were made with purpose, and that was to know God. And that is what preaching the gospel of the kingdom means in a culture that is completely a, a, you know, astray in their ideas for what they are fulfilling in their life, what they're running after. And the only way that we will faithfully preach the gospel according to the commands of Jesus Christ is to do these things, heal the sick, cast out devils, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead. We must not listen to the 10 spies saying that there are giants in the land. Believe me, it's really bad out there. People, even in the church, have this doom and gloom mentality, and everybody is saying, there are giants in the land, America's doomed, it's all going to hell, you know, it's all done, it's pointless, move to a different country. I actually know some Christians who are moving to other countries, or have thought of other countries. Now, that may be a valid thing, I don't know, I, you know, I'm not the Holy Spirit, <laughs> I don't know if they really heard that from God, but it doesn't seem to me like the strategy is ever turn and run. It's turn and fight. So, let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ has become for us a greater Joshua. That Jesus' Hebrew name is Yeshua, the same word for Joshua. Lord, you have made it clear that Jesus is bringing us into the land, a good land, a land that's flowing with milk and honey, a land with vineyards that we haven't planted, with wine presses that we didn't dig out, with wells that we didn't dig out. Lord, you are bringing us into your kingdom. Lord, we ask that your kingdom would be established in our hearts first, in our families, through our children. God, also in our schools and churches. Lord, in this culture, have your way. God, I pray that you would deliver us from unbelief, which fails to behold the revelation in the former miracle that God has done. Lord, Allow us to not be like these Israelites who, because of their unbelief and their hardness of heart and their sin, had to spend a generation in the wilderness. Lord, we love what you are doing in restoring your church, and we pray, God, that we would be given grace from heaven, that it would not be in our own strength, but, Lord, that it would be by your Holy Spirit that we say yes to pursuing all that you would have for us. God, I pray that you would release dreams, visions, the desire to do your will in the hearts and minds of our people. God, give us a, a way of lovingly confronting uh, Christianity that is, that is tempered down or that has, has reduced itself to just believing something with the mind. Lord, allow it to be real. God, allow it to be burning in our hearts such that we can't but help share with neighbors and friends, co-workers, everything that you would have. God, I ask that you would do this in me and in our church. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.